0: All right, good evening, Hallows Church. It's really good to see you uh, this evening. I'm excited to be here and kick things off from a teaching perspective. Uh, this is actually my first time I've been able to attend one of these all-church retreats. Uh, every other year we've had Sunday morning worship gatherings back in Seattle, and every single year Andrew said, hey, Jeff, can you preach back in Seattle? And I said, yes, and if you know me and you know when I'm uh, preaching on Sunday morning, I'm pretty much useless to do anything else on Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. I'm sure my wife is nodding emphatically back there, and so it's great to be here and be able to kick things off in this way. We're going to step into this topic of gospel-saturated identity based on the passage, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 14, so let's do that now. Now, a few years back, there was an article in the Chicago Tribune, and it was entitled Living a Life Unknown. The subtitle of that article said this, it said dozens of John and Jane Does turn up yearly in our state. Most are identified, but some are not. Now, this article, it was all about the various people who each year would turn up at hospitals or who would be picked up by the police who for one reason or another could not remember who they were. They had no recollection of their own identities. And sometimes, despite all the efforts of social services and the police, these cases would go unsolved and these people would remain in the care of the state for years or even decades. Sometimes, though, these cases would be solved. Somehow, some way, someone would manage to discover the identity of one of these unknown people. And this particular article gave a fascinating example of that very thing. It told the story, you see, of a man who had been a ward of the state for nearly 15 years. And that was longer than any other Jane Doe, John Doe, sorry, in the state of Illinois at that time. Now, according to doctors and caregivers who were interviewed for this article, this particular man, who the medical staff had given the name Carlos, he had suffered a stroke. And that stroke had left him unable to walk and unable uh, to talk, you see, it had damaged his brain, and it had given him what the doctors believed to be a severe form of amnesia. Now, the medical staff that took care of Carlos, he said that in spite of all that, he, they said he was actually quite a pleasant uh, person uh, to be around. They said that any time that they would engage and interact with Carlos, he would greet them with, quote, "a wide smile and a giddy giggle. Then one day, One of the case managers at the facility where Carlos was living, Miss Herrera, was her name. She somehow managed to piece together who this guy really was. She was able to discover his true identity. And she learned that his name was Crispin Moreno. And according to the story, that very day, Miss Herrera, she went to this man, and she looked him in the eyes, and she called him by his true name. She said to him several times, Crispin Moreno, Crispin Moreno, Crispin Moreno. And this normally smiley and giggly man was apparently not smiling or giggling at all in that moment. In fact, he sat there, silent, with a searching expression on his face. And after a few moments of staring back into the eyes of Miss Herrera and hearing his real name spoken to him for the first time in over 13 years, Tears began to stream down the face of this man as he began, to re- be, he began to remember who he was. You see, this man had lived for over a decade without ever hearing his true name spoken to him. But when somebody finally told him who he was, when somebody finally spoke the truth about his identity into this man's life, everything began to change for Crisp- Crispin Marino from that point forward. And friends, as Christians living life in a fallen world, the truth is we all suffer from a sort of amnesia at times, a spiritual amnesia. We forget who we are, and we forget uh, whose we are, and we all too easily lose ourselves. And we truly do need one another to remind one another of who we really are. At times, more than anything else, what we need as Christians is for someone to look us in the eye and to And to call us by our true name, you are a beloved son. You are a beloved daughter of a good and gracious and glorious God. I'd like to explore with you this evening this theme of gospel-saturated identity under three headings. Searching for ourselves, finding ourselves, and flourishing as ourselves. And my hope for this message is that it might help us uh, first to really see Uh, clearly who we are in Christ based on this incredible passage that's written by the Apostle Paul in Ephesians uh, chapter 1 so that we in turn might help others to also see clearly who they are in Christ too for searching for ourselves. There is perhaps nothing more central to life in our culture and in our world than the search for identity, the search for self, right? Who am I? How do I know? How do I find myself? You see it in books and magazines. You see it on the television. You see it all over social media. This pervasive theme of searching and seeking and trying to figure out who we are and trying to discover the best version of you. Indeed, there are many different prevailing theories in the world today held by many different uh, people on how to go about answering that question, who am I? And the truth is, they could not be any more different than the way the Bible and the Gospel answers that question. But we need to see both, and we need to understand both. We need to understand not only what the Bible says about who we are, we need to understand what the world is trying to tell us, too. Because if we're not conscious and aware of the many misguided ways that the world is trying to tell us to find ourselves, we're actually quite prone to picking them up ourselves, kind of like a virus. Most every one of us, whether we realize it or not, can all too easily become infected and affected by what the world has to say about who we are and and how we should see ourselves and how we should measure ourselves and measure uh, our self-worth. And so I'd like to draw some distinctions for a few moments here. I'd like to compare and contrast a few things about, about what the world says about who we are and how we find our true selves and what the Bible and what the Gospel has to say about this too. First, in the world, you see, your identity is something that is achieved. One of the most common ways people find their identities in the world is in what they do and how well they do it. And so in response to the question, who am I, the answer according to the world quite often is, I am what I accomplish. I am what I acquire. I am what I achieve. And what people are often looking to accomplish or acquire in their search for themselves, it can be just about anything. Quite often, it's career or family or academics. I'm a doctor. I'm a mother. I'm a student, right? That's who I am. It can most certainly be money. It can be power. It can be possessions. Some people, more than anything else, want to achieve love and approval and acceptance in their lives or or on their social media feeds. That's what they look to, whether consciously or not, for their significance and for their worth. But at a fundamental level, the very same underlying theory of identity formation is at work in each one of these. You see, every person on this planet has a deep longing to figure out who they are and why they matter. And the world tells us, quite assertively, that one of the main ways you find yourself and and prove yourself to yourself and, and to the world around you is by what you have and by what you do and by how well you do it. But the Bible says that's not the case at all. The Bible says the truth is really kind of the opposite of that. The Bible says that who you are is not about you and what you do, it's about what Jesus has done and who he is. You see, whereas in the world, many would say your identity is achieved, the Bible tells us that in Christ, your identity is received. It's given to you. And in a certain sense, it's not your own. Now, several years back, I was a victim of identity theft. Someone had somehow gained access to my name and other information about me, and they'd opened a a credit card in my name, and they began to make some rather substantial charges on that credit card that got billed to me at my home address. It was quite upsetting, actually, and quite uh, annoying to have to deal with. This person had stolen my identity. They had stolen uh, what was mine, and they were using it, and taking advantage of it for their own gain. But the surprising reality, friends, is that you and I, as Christians, we're engaging in the very same sort of thing, aren't we? Do you realize that? We're engaging in identity theft in every way, but, but with permission. We've taken on an, an identity that is not our own, and we're using that identity for our own gain. If you are not, you are supposed to be. When you put your trust in Jesus and the gospel, what is true of him becomes true of you. And you are invited to access all the resources and all the benefits that go along with that. You and I are invited to to empty the bank account, so to speak, and to withdraw all that we need whenever we need it. And so are you doing that? Are you tapping into the identity that you've received Or are you more often than not searching for your identity through what you achieve? A second way the world tells us how to answer the question, who am I, is quite pervasive in our culture today. And that is, you are whatever you decide you are. In the world, your identity is decided. And it's decided by you. And in this case, in response to the question, who am I, the answer is quite often, I am whatever I feel that I am. I am whatever I say that I am. In this approach, the most important thing in trying to find yourself is not hard work and achievement. The important thing is not what you do or accomplish or acquire. The important thing is what you think about yourself and how you feel about yourself. You decide your identity quite often based on the feelings that you have. And the assumption here is that if I can can uh, just get down deep enough and if I can uh, just get in touch with my deepest feelings, Then I can figure out who I really am. This type of thinking, of course, has been around for a long time in one form or another. But it most certainly is emerging and finding new momentum and and new manifestations in our culture today. It's really all around us if you're paying attention. In fact, just a couple of years ago, do you know uh, what the uh, dictionary.com website word of the year was? It was identity. And do you know why? A CNN article about this word of the year tells us why. It says this. It says, from Caitlyn Jenner to Rachel Dolezal to Miley Cyrus, the idea of self-identification played a prominent role in some of the biggest news stories of the year. Race, sexuality, and gender are the live wire topics that inspired dictionary.com to pick identity as its word of the year. The CEO of Dictionary.com, Liz McMillan is her name, she said this in the article. She said, the trends that we saw linguistically all point to a larger shift in the way that society thinks about identity as being more fluid. Now, of course, Caitlyn Jenner was Bruce Jenner, but he decided that he was a she. And he did something about it because that's how he felt inside. And Rachel Dolezal was born a white woman, but she self-identified as a black woman, because that's what she decided she was based on her feelings. The world is speaking quite loudly on this point. You are whatever you decide that you are, whenever you decide it. And nobody apparently has much right under any circumstance to question those feelings or to tell you otherwise. I saw another article this week about how a college application asked applicants to select their preferred pronoun usage. Singular pronouns used to be just male and female, right? He and she. Like the Bible says, God made them male and female. But this college application asked applicants to select from among 10 different pronoun options. And this was an application at an all-women's college. In the world, your identity is decided, and it's decided by you. It's up to you, and and things are taking some pretty bizarre turns as new ways of of being lost and broken are emerging as a result. But in Christ, it is quite different. In Christ, your identity is not decided by you. Rather, it's declared for you by God. And in a few minutes, we'll be uh, diving into Ephesians chapter 1, a beautiful passage. It's going to tell us a number of incredible things that God has declared about you and I and who we are in Christ by grace through faith. And so we'll go there in just a moment. But before we do, one more thing about searching for yourself in the world, trying to find your identity in the world. And that is that it will eventually wear you out. Your identity, and as you look to the world to find it, can be quite exhausting And the reason for that is because there's no real stability. Everything is contingent and conditional based on how things are going. And so what are you left with when when all the achievements dry up or when you finally figure out that they don't really live up to what you were asking of them? How do you cope? Who are you then? And what about your feelings? Are those stable? Can we really trust our feelings? I know I can't. In fact, I've learned that my faith is quite often not at all about uh, how I feel. Rather, it's about trusting God in spite of how I feel. If who you are is based on how you feel, what are you left with when your feelings blatantly contradict themselves? Which they can, and, or which they do, and which they will. And I think about your feelings. You really want that career, right? But you want that family, too? You want to make more money, but you want to work less and have more free time. You want to eat that box of Oreos, but you also want to lose some weight. (laughs) If you think about these things carefully, can't you see how so many of our feelings are in tension with one another? They contradict one another, which leaves you with an incredibly unstable identity if you're trying to define yourself by them. One commentator said this, trying to guide your life by your feelings, trying to make sense of what your deepest feelings are and basing your life on that. He said, trying to do that is like trying to drive a car by putting your foot down all the way to the floor on both the brake and the (laughs) accelerator at the same time, because your feelings will inevitably pull you apart. Searching searching for your identity in the world is unstable and it will eventually become exhausting. But searching for your identity in Christ and finding your identity in Christ, in fact, can be quite exhilarating. As I mentioned earlier, in Christ, your identity is given to you. It's a gift. His identity becomes your identity. God sees you and God uh, loves you as he sees Jesus and as he loves Jesus. And it, it does not depend on what you do or how you feel. It is not contingent or conditional. It is constant. It is fixed, and nothing can change it, not even you. And this is wonderful news. This means that God's love for you does not wane or waver depending on how well you're doing, how well uh, you're feeling, or how well you're measuring up. This means that you cannot and will not ever be any more loved by God than Jesus in the gospel has already made you. And what what an exhilarating dynamic to consider and to take hold of And so let's do that now. Let's talk some more about what this looks like. Let's talk not about searching for ourselves. Let's talk now about finding ourselves in Christ and what God uh, declares about us based on this passage in Ephesians chapter 1. Let me read that passage for us now. Uh, Verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places This passage is quite spectacular. It's a remarkable passage. It's a very dense piece of text that in every way is really bursting with meaning and implication about about who we are and about who God is and about what he's done for us in the gospel. And there are five things I want to draw out of this passage about who you are in Christ and who I am in Christ. First of all, in Christ, because of Christ, you you are wanted We're told here in the opening few verses of this passage, something quite mind-blowing. We're told that God wanted you. He, He chose you before you even knew it, before you wanted anything to do with Him. In fact, before you even existed, before the foundations of the world, Paul says, your Creator and your God, He wanted you and He chose you. Jesus, in John chapter 15, verse 16, would say something similar. He said, you did not choose me, but I chose you. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 4, Paul says, we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you. John chapter four, uh, 6, verse 44, Jesus says, no one comes to, can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Now, the Bible in these and other passages teaches us that if if you believe the gospel, if you have uh, faith in the gospel, that belief and that faith, it it didn't start with you. It started with God because he wanted you and he came to you and he opened your heart and he drew you to himself. Christian, you are wanted. Verse 5 says that you've also been adopted as his child. He's adopted you to himself and for himself, and it tells us why, too. It says, according to the good pleasure of his will, he adopted you and he adopted me because he wanted to, because it pleased him to do so, because he's making a family, and he he has willed and purposed that you and I will be a part of that family. And Paul could not have insisted more forcefully that our becoming adopted children in God's family was due neither to chance nor to our choice, but to his own sovereign will and good pleasure. That was the decisive factor. Christian, you are wanted. But not only that, we're told here why. We're told why he wanted you. We're told why he chose you. We're told why he adopted you. In verses 4 and 5, it says it was love. It was because of love that he did these things. Christian, you are not only wanted, you are loved deeply. And listen to some of the ways the writers of the New Testament, under, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, tell us about the nature of God's love for us and the magnitude and the extent of God's love for us. 1 John chapter 4, verses 9 and 10 say this, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Romans chapter 5, verse 8 says, God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, Paul says, Christ loved me and gave Himself for me. Paul in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4 says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Christian, you are loved, and it's a love that you do not earn or deserve. It's a love that you do not achieve or accomplish. It's a love that you received by grace, through faith. And it's a love that's declared about you in spite of you, every moment of every day. And how exhilarating is that? But another thing we see about ourselves and about our identity in Christ is that not only are you wanted, not only are you loved, but in Christ you are redeemed and you are released. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7 says, In Jesus, in Him, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. And the Greek word there translated as redemption in your Bible, uh, it's an interesting word. You see, uh, to Paul and to the Ephesians in that time and in that place, that word redemption was most often used to refer to the act of paying a ransom in order to purchase somebody, in order to purchase someone out of captivity who had been kidnapped or, or who had been enslaved Perhaps the most famous example of this at the time was when a young Julius Caesar was kidnapped in 75 B.C. by a band of pirates who then forced his family to pay a hefty ransom for his life. His family did pay the ransom, and they were able to secure Caesar's freedom and safety, but then they proceeded to capture and to crucify those pirates who had done this. But it's interesting, isn't it, that Paul uses language here of slavery and ransom payments? He uses language that seems to suggest that the whole human race is captive and enslaved. We see similar language used throughout the Bible. In fact, in Jesus' first sermon that's recorded in the Bible, in Luke chapter 4, he stood up and he read from the scroll of the prophet Isaiah And he basically said this, he said, I'm the one who God promised would come and who would open the eyes of the blind and who would set the captives free. And it may not have been clear at the time, but it is clear now that Jesus was talking about spiritual blindness. He was talking about spiritual captivity. Jesus there and Paul here is saying that nothing short of a ransom would be needed to free us from ourselves, to free us from our sin and to to release us from this fallen human condition that binds us. Mark would similarly say that payment has been made in full. In Mark chapter 10, verse 45, we're told that Jesus came not to uh, be served, but to serve and to give his life as as a ransom for many. Christian, you've been purchased and you've been released. You've been released from yourself and your striving. You've been released from your sin and its consequences. You've been released from your guilt and your shame. You've been released from Satan and from death. The payment has been made in full, and the payment is final, and the payment was the blood of Christ, shed for the forgiveness of your sins according to the riches of His grace. But also in Christ, not only have you been purchased and released... You're also secure. In Christ, you are secure, and you have nothing to fear. Verse 13 says that when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. You see, when you put your trust and faith in Jesus and the redemption that he secured for you at the cross, the Holy Spirit moves in and and takes up residence. You were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, it says. And that word sealed, the Greek word translated in your Bible is sealed. It's an interesting word, too, that that in that day referred to uh, a mark of ownership or a mark of authenticity. A seal would have often been affixed to a document to guarantee its genuineness. A seal would have been attached to items that were in transit to indicate ownership and to ensure their safe arrival at their final destination. Animals and at, even, uh, at times even slaves in that day were often branded with a seal by their owners in order to indicate to whom they belonged. But of course such seals were external in nature while God's seal is on our hearts. He puts his spirit within his people in order to mark them as his own, in order to teach and to guide them, and in order to empower them on mission for him. By giving believers the spirit, God seals and stamps you and I. He has marked us as his own possession. And he says, you're mine. And I've got you no matter what. And I promise, I can promise to you that you will arrive safely at your final destination. In Christ, your fate and your future are secure. And that fate and that future, we're told in verse 11, includes an inheritance You and I, we are co-heirs with Jesus in the kingdom of God. And so our final point in this section then is that in Christ you are rich. You are wealthy beyond what you can imagine. And in verse 14, Paul says the Holy Spirit is our guarantee, our first installment or our down payment of sorts of this inheritance. The presence of God himself with us in small part now and in, in glorious fullness later. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 5, talk about this inheritance too. Let's take a look at that. According According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again, to be born again, new identity, to a living hope, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be re- revealed in the last time. Your inheritance is kept in heaven for you, ready to be revealed. God has it ready for us now. It's already a reality kept for us, waiting for us, and it's not going anywhere. And the Bible in, in, uh, uses many very fascinating and many very vivid metaphors in describing the future riches that await us, a future in which God and man will dwell together forever, a future in which God is making all things new, a future in which God will wipe away every tear from every eye and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And so, Christian, that is your future, and then in verse 5, Peter says that not only is our inheritance being kept for us, we're being kept for it too. How? It says by God's power through faith. Now remember, I said earlier, God is the gracious initiator and sustainer of our faith in Jesus. And so God uses faith as the instrument of his, of his keeping power because faith is ultimately not our achievement. It is his Indeed, it would be a little comfort to know that this inheritance was there waiting for us, but that there was some way for you and I to, to mess something up down here and to lose it in the end. No, we see that the same power of God that keeps our inheritance also keeps us. And so, Christian, you are safe, you are secure, and you are rich. So we've talked about searching for ourselves. We've talked about finding ourselves. Let's talk for a moment now about flourishing as ourselves, flourishing in our own walk with Jesus and helping others to flourish in theirs. Three quick points I'd like to make. First, we need to lead ourselves and others to who we are and to whose we are. We cannot help others see clearly who they are in Christ and take advantage uh, of the identity they have received unless we ourselves are seeing clearly what that identity is and how we got it and what it means for us. And so our discipleship of others must always begin with our discipleship of ourselves. And in order to effectively lead ourselves and others to who we are and to whose we are, we need to understand very clearly who God says we are, and we need to understand very clearly who God says He is, too. And we do this by pressing into passages like the ones we're exploring tonight and others that talk about uh, who we are in Christ and who God is, We do this by studying those scriptures, by knowing those scriptures, by memorizing and meditating upon those scriptures. And friends, let me tell you why this is so important. Your identity in Christ and my identity in Christ is in many ways the the epicenter of the spiritual warfare that we face. And there is much warfare that we face, warfare from the world, warfare uh, from our flesh, and warfare from... From Satan the accuser and the deceiver if we do not know well the truth about who we are and about whose we are we will never be in a position to spot or to squelch the lies that come at us seeking to distort how we see ourselves and how we see our God you simply cannot expose and extinguish lies unless you know what is true And we've included in your booklet uh, this weekend, I believe, something that I hope will be very helpful to you in this regard. There should be an appendix in your booklet. If there is not, then we will make that available to you uh, elsewhere. But this appendix includes explanations and a list of various lies and uh, identity distortions that can so easily deceive us if we are not paying attention or if we are not aware of them, which is quite often the case. I don't have time to get into those now, but I do think it is critical for us to understand these, so please take advantage of that resource because it is only as we can see and expose these lies that we can really help a brother or sister who is struggling by looking them in the eye and by calling them by their true name to wake them up and to remind them of who they really are. Second, in order to flourish as ourselves in Christ and to help others flourish in Christ, We need to lead ourselves and others to accept our own acceptance. What we just talked about was focused on knowing who we are in Christ, and this one is more uh, focused on on believing who we are in Christ and accepting who we are in Christ, and that is not always easy. There's a big difference, in fact, between understanding the truth in our heads and actually taking the truth into our hearts and really believing it in life-changing ways. This is a great struggle in the Christian life, I think, believing that we are truly loved and accepted in the ways the gospel and the Bible tells us that we are. And So let me share with you one simple approach that I've found helpful in driving the truth more deeply into my heart and in clearing away the noise and the chatter in my head that often seems to get the better of me. In a book written by David Martin Lloyd-Jones, he offers a very interesting strategy, I think, for taking the truth in more deeply, in part by taking our thoughts captive. Right along the lines of 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5, Lloyd-Jones says this. He says, Have you realized that most of your unhappiness and struggle in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Very simple, but very profound and and very true. Take a moment to consider your typical pattern of thinking over the course of a day. Do you spend more time talking to yourself, speaking truth to yourself, or do you spend more time listening to yourself? More often than not, when I'm listening to myself, things will be all over the map, sometimes productive, sometimes not, often destructive. I wake up in the morning, and many thoughts are swirling in my head, talking to me, bringing back the problems of yesterday, telling me about the problems of today, telling me to get out there and prove myself again, telling me that I'll never be enough, reminding me of how I screwed up again, telling me I'm a phony, a fake, and a fraud, and everyone knows it, telling me that I'm unlovable and unfixable. But instead of listening to those things and even joining in on those things to the point of discouragement and, and depression even, instead I stop listening to myself and I start speaking to myself. I start speaking to myself like the psalmist in Psalm 42. Instead of allowing his self uh, to talk to him, he starts talking to himself. He says, why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? He says, I will hope in God. I shall again praise him. He is my salvation. The psalmist's soul had been depressing him and crushing him. And so he stands up and says, I'm not going to listen to you. I'm going to speak to you. Quite often, we need to preach to ourselves. We need to drive the truth deeper and deeper into our hearts. You are not your achievements. You are not your possessions. You are not your feelings. You are not what others think of you. You are wanted. You are loved. You are adopted. You are forgiven. And that will never change. Stop listening to yourself and start speaking to yourself. Drive the truth deeper. Accept your acceptance. And encourage others to do the same. Finally, our last point. We lead ourselves and others to the freedom we have in Christ. Friends, there is great freedom available in this identity that has been gifted to us. There is a great freedom in knowing and believing that that how God sees you and how God loves you and the future that God promises to you does not depend on you at all. It does not depend on you or your performance. His love for you is not achieved. It is received. It is not contingent or conditional. It is constant. You are loved, you are wanted, and you are secure. How liberating to know and to believe that we can can stop basing our lives on the acceptance and the approval of others. Because the only approval and acceptance that we truly need deep down, we already have. And it's not going anywhere. Your value and your worth do not depend on how you feel or what you do or how well you do it or how poorly you do it. They do not depend on what others may think or say about you. Jesus says, stop looking to the wrong things to bring meaning to your life. They will only exhaust you and enslave you in the end. He says, I've given you an identity that is severed from those things. It is severed from your performance. It is severed from your failures. It is severed from your sin. It is severed from what the world is telling you. It is severed from what your own deceptive heart may be telling you. He says your identity does not depend on your performance at all. Rather, it depends on how the Father sees you, how the Father loves you, and how the Father celebrates you as a result of my performance. And friends, because of Jesus' performance, the Father looks at you, and he looks at me, and he says, my beloved son, my beloved daughter, in you I delight In you, I am well pleased. That's your identity, Christian. And so what are you doing with it? Are you taking advantage of all the benefits that it's offering? Are you emptying the bank account? Are you taking hold of this freedom? And are you helping others take hold of it too? Let's pray. Father, thank you for wanting us. Thank you for loving us in Jesus. Thank you for releasing us from ourselves and our striving and our sin. Thank you for the future inheritance that we look forward to, dwelling with you forever. God, would you help us see ever more clearly these marvelous truths? Would you help us to believe more and more deeply who you say we are and who you say you are too? And would you help us expose and extinguish the lies that try to seduce us? Thank you for this time. Thank you for this church. Thank you for your love for us. In Jesus' name, amen.